Welcome back to Brailcast, connecting the dots for blind people everywhere. I'm Matthew Horsepool, and coming up this month... Braille enables blind people to read print. Like, no, it doesn't. Braille enables blind people to read. The way that we think of teaching Braille is often very much based in this idea of contractions. You, you would ask children to unpack them and then figure out what the print word is based on the rules of print spelling and then uh, read the word that way. And that's just simply not how uh, fluent reading happens. How to say it with Braille. We talk to Dr. Robert Engelbretson, Associate Professor of Linguistics at Rice University, about Braille pedagogy and the International Phonetic Alphabet. Based in Houston, Texas, Dr. Robert Engelbretson is widely recognised for his contributions to Braille research. In 2008, his work on updating the Braille International Phonetic Alphabet was published by the International Council on English Braille, and in 2019 the Braille Authority of North America made him a recipient of the Darlene Bogart Braille Excellence Award in recognition of this work. More recently, he's begun to tackle misconceptions around how students learn to read and write Braille from the perspective of the cognitive sciences, with a large research project due to be completed by 2024. On Friday the 3rd of June, we caught up with Robert as part of our series of Stay Safe, Stay Connected conference calls, and we started by asking him to describe the International Phonetic Alphabet. The IPA is not just a type of beer, but the IPA, the International Phonetic Alphabet, is a means of notating the sounds of spoken language uh, in all of the languages of the world. So it focuses on the human vocal apparatus and how speech sounds are made uh, and provides a symbol for notating all of the known speech sounds in the world's languages. It's developed and maintained by the International Phonetic Association, which is a a UK-based group, actually. The uh, early phoneticians were very uh, very much based in the UK, uh, and the International Phonetic Alphabet is used by people in linguistics, the language sciences. It's used by people um, in many fields of speech and language pathology, in uh, speech recognition and speech synthesis, in the performing arts, such as uh, dialect coaching and uh, vocal pedagogy. Uh, and it's really used anywhere that we need a uh, clear and unambiguous way of notating uh, exactly how someone is speaking. I was going to say, one of the things I learned from your website is that it, it enables you to study things like endangered languages. Yes, that's one of the reasons why I got into linguistics, because of the connection with endangered languages. You know, there's approximately 6,000 languages currently spoken on Earth. And by the end of this century, Uh, about 90% of them are going to be extinct. And a lot of uh, indigenous communities are working right now uh, on revitalizing and maintaining their native languages and uh, being able to notate a spoken language that doesn't have a writing system is one of the key things that linguists had used the IPA for. So that's one of the reasons I got into linguistics in the first place. And a lot of the students that I've been training over the last quarter century uh, do language documentation and description. Uh, my own fieldwork was in Indonesia, so my PhD dissertation was on colloquial varieties of Indonesian, and I lived there in the mid-90s. But most of my work now uh, focuses on um, discourse and grammar, so the way that we, how we speak motivates and constrains the form of language. So we, we call this a f- field of interactional linguistics. So uh, language, grammar, is shaped by social interaction, shaped by functional pressure, shaped by how we use language to communicate with one another. Uh, And then my sort of um, more recent area of research has to do with braille reading and writing. And part of the reason I got into that area uh, was when I was asked or invited by the International Council on English Braille in 2005 to serve on the committee that was um, updating the Braille IPA, became very clear to me that there was a fairly large disconnect between the reading sciences, which I'm pretty familiar with as a, as a linguist and a cognitive scientist, and uh, Braille reading and writing. And I think uh, we will all be better off uh, for bringing those fields together. So uh, Braille pedagogy, Braille reading and writing will benefit from what we know about how the 
the brain works, how the mind processes language, how reading and writing work. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of really neat things that Braille can teach the cognitive sciences as well. So this is sort of my goal. One of my goals right now is to kind of bridge those areas and bring that together. So there has been a Braille version of the International Phonetic Alphabet since 1934. So the first Braille edition of the IPA was published by RNIB. I don't know if it was RNIB at the time, but that same organization that you got now, uh, published this in 1934. And it was based on work that a um, blind musicologist had done named, uh, what was his name, W. Percy Merrick. And he worked with um, uh, an individual named W. Pothoff, and they worked closely with Daniel Jones, who was one of the preeminent phoneticians in the early 20th century, to come up with a Braille version of the IPA, which... Uh, really, there was a review in the Journal of the International Phonetic Association in 1936 that commented, you know, this really opens doors for blind people for careers in phonetics and the language sciences. And I, looking back on that article from 1936, that I think was a fairly revolutionary thing to say at the time. You know, hey, you know, blind people can have careers in these fields now that we have this system. But it's absolutely true. Now, the problem, though was that throughout the 20th century, since the 1934 edition was, uh, was published, it had not been updated. So it had not kept up with the new information that we learned about human physiology and speech sounds, uh, the updates that the International Phonetic Association had been making to the print IPA all throughout the century, and to uh, a number of other uh, things such as uh, Unicode-based fonts and uh, the way that the IPA interfaces with Unicode. There was an additional wrinkle in that in 1997, the Braille Authority of North America, and I, we still don't know who put this together, but they introduced a different version of Braille IPA symbols that wasn't at all compatible with the UK-based one. Uh, the, this 1934 one was also used throughout uh, Europe uh, and the rest of the world as well. So we had this horrible situation in the early aughts here where the system that was official in the United States was different from the system that was official in the rest of the world. So the international phonetic alphabet was no longer international in Braille. So I came on board the International Council on English Braille group on linguistics and foreign languages to, uh, as a linguist, as a phonetician, as someone who teaches these things and knows the systems, to really oversee the unification of these systems. Although from my perspective and that of other Braille IPA using linguists, it wasn't really a matter of unifying, it was a matter of getting rid of the, uh, the monster that uh, the Braille Authority of North America introduced in 1997 and coming back to the original Merrick and Pothoff 1934 system and then updating it profoundly because it was you know, 70, what, 74 years out of date at that point. And also making sure that it was fully computable so that those of us who are blind can type IPA symbols using a computer keyboard. Uh, there's a number of IPA keyboards that, that we can use. And so that it would be able to be used by the Duxbury Braille Translator, by JAWS, by our note takers. And there are now uh, IPA Braille tables in all of those things. So uh, on the iPhone, for example, you can set to display IPA Braille. So this was uh, overseen by the International Council on English Braille, this committee that I was a part of. I felt a little uncomfortable uh, receiving this award from BANA uh, last fall because, uh, and I, I think I made it very clear, this was not a single person endeavor. This was the work of a whole committee and a lot of people working together. And granted, I was the one who really had the most expertise because of my uh, studies and my field and, and, and what I do. But this was peer-reviewed. We sent out copies when we got the system finalized. We sent out copies to uh, Braille reading linguists and phoneticians and speech therapists and anybody who wanted one. We took, uh, there was about a year and a half of comments. Uh, I also posted it for, uh, I, I uh, included a post in the Journal of the International Phonetic Association and uh, asked for comments from other professional linguists and phoneticians, maybe who weren't blind, but might just be interested in the system. Uh, and then I also wrote a um, journal article for the Journal of the International Phonetic Association to let um, the community of linguists and phoneticians know about Braille IPA, because I often, uh, usually about 
twice a semester, I get an email from a colleague somewhere in the world who has a, a blind student in one of their linguistics courses for the first time ever, and they're freaking out and concerned how I'm going to teach this student. Is there a Braille IPA? And so I really wanted to make this widely known in the linguistics and phonetics community that, um, yes, Braille IPA exists. It is fully peer-reviewed, fully functional. It works with all this technology. So really, it's a matter uh, at this point, if there's a linguistics student, you just give them the handout in, uh, in Word or, uh, as, or accessible PDF, and they can switch to the Braille IPA table and read the symbols directly. There's really not a whole lot of uh, intervention needed. So more blind people now are able to study linguistics in a, in a meaningful way as a result of this work. Yeah, so it it's, um, you know, the door was already open since 1934 with the American Pothoff system, uh, but very few people knew about it. it. It hadn't been kept up to speed, and it really needed to be updated and promoted and published and made sort of brought into the 20th century now that the 20th century is over. And this phonetic alphabet, or the international phonetic alphabet, it's not just endangered languages, is it? There's um, vocal music and, and other areas where it can be applied. Yeah, pretty much any field that needs a um, sound-based rather than a spelling-based uh, approach to language. So like many of us, Robert, you've been reading and writing Braille since the age of five. What really kind of got you interested in Braille education? Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to tell you how long ago age five was for me. You'll probably be able to figure it out. But what got me into that was in conversations on the ICEB groups that I was uh, when I was uh, taking part in this update and uh, talking with Braille teachers and readers. Uh, it really became clear to me that there was not a lot of interaction between the Braille world and the larger world of the reading sciences. And in cognitive science and linguistics, you know, reading is one of the areas that we study. And over the last 20 years, there has really been a phenomenal growth in what we know about the brain, uh, neuroimaging, the neuroscience of reading, the cognition that underlies how reading happens. Uh, and you know, just within the last 10 years, these so-called reading wars that have been going on for you know, 100 years about you know, phonics-based versus whole language, those kinds of things really have been uh, resolved through evidence-based research. And um, it just it became very clear to me that Braille needed to be informed by the work that's been going on in the reading sciences. Now, conversely, you know, when I open a uh, large handbook, such as the Handbook of the Reading Sciences, that's um, presumably the, uh, you know, contains the compendium of, of knowledge, or, or most of it anyway, about reading and writing, and find no mention of Braille, that's a little concerning as well. Because uh, Braille reading and writing, by virtue of being a tactile modality rather than a visual modality, gives you uh, a whole different way of understanding what reading and writing can be and how it works. So we can't just assume that because something works a certain way in print reading, that it's going to work exactly that same way in Braille reading too. And uh, really, Braille can be uh, sort of a laboratory uh, to understand some of the questions that cognitive scientists have about uh, reading and writing in the, in the brain. Uh, so I, uh, at the same time as I was sort of pushing at getting the Braille world more interested in the reading sciences, I was also pushing to get the reading science world more interested in Braille. And the kinds of responses that I would get early on were things like, well, uh, that's special education, so we're not really interested uh, in that. Or, well, isn't Braille obsolete? I've heard that Braille's obsolete. And, you know, we've all responded to those in various ways. I won't go into how I responded, but... Um, so I, I think it's sort of a matter of of helping to educate in both directions. And there, I've, um, I'm working with some really excellent colleagues, both in the Braille world and the reading sciences world, to make that happen. I started to read your uh, your CV, uh, and it's quite extensive. But I stopped when I got to the point where I read about your. Uh, worked last year to secure funding for your your research in in braille education and and that's fantastic what what is the scope of that project 
So it's not, uh, I have to, it, this again, this is a team effort. So there are two other principal investigators here. So Simon Fisherbaum is a colleague in the psychology department here at Rice who runs a neuroimaging uh, lab, does a lot of work on uh, language in the brain. He is one collaborator and Kay Holbrook, who many of you might remember from ICEB meetings. She is on the faculty of the School of Education at the University of British Columbia in Canada. Uh, and her expertise, uh, she's been in the field of Braille pedagogy for over 40 years, and she's written a number of textbooks. So we are jointly doing this project. This is not, uh, you know, it takes all three of us. This really is team science at the best because uh, we all have expertise in areas that the others of us don't. So really, it takes all three of us to do this. So our main question, one, one of our main questions has to do with the way that Braille is taught. Uh, in the United States, at least, as a code versus thinking of Braille as a writing system. So what kinds of things do teachers do who are predominantly sighted, uh, predominantly people who, had been, who are print readers, who maybe uh, learned Braille for a two-semester course in their graduate education for, for teaching, uh, who think of Braille as a code for representing print? Now, of course, those of us who uh, who read Braille as our primary writing system, don't think of it that way, or we shouldn't, right? Braille is our primary means of literacy. So this is very subtle, but I've seen this in a lot of publications. People will say, Braille enables blind people to read print. Like, no, it doesn't. Braille enables blind people to read. You know, Braille enables literacy. Braille is literacy. Braille is not a means of accessing print, right? So the way that we think of teaching Braille is often very much based in this idea of, uh, you know, with, with contractions, you, you would ask children to unpack them and then figure out what the print word is based on the rules of print spelling and then uh, read the word that way. And that's just simply not how uh, fluent reading happens. So uh, that's just to give you an example. Um, well, for, I'll, I'll give you a, um, a small example of that. So, uh, you know, when, when we teach reading, in uh, to very small kids in print, uh, we teach them about vowel teams like uh, the double e in the words like seed and need, uh, and uh, you teach them when you see this ee, -E, it makes the e sound right. Uh, some people call that the long e. Uh, but in Braille, when you read words like seed and need and feed, uh, you don't see that ee -E, vowel team. You see an e followed by the ed symbol. And uh, we have to really think about what are the digraphs that Braille readers experience? What, uh, because when, uh, when we learn to read, most of what we uh, learn about reading are not things that we are taught. Uh, our brains are stochastic processing machines. They're statistical learning machines. And what we internalize about our our native writing system is from the reading that we do. Lots and lots of reading uh, essentially wires the neurological system to see certain patterns, to recognize certain patterns. Uh, and when the patterns that kids are being taught are different than the patterns that are being internalized, I, uh, we think that this may have some uh, possibly negative consequences on the speed and acquisition of literacy and, and fluency. So just that's an example of, uh, of the kinds of questions that we're asking. And is that contentious, given that, as you said, you know, teachers currently, you know, they are teaching students to uh, unpack the contractions, to understand the spelling, because, you know, presumably, you know, we live in a print world and at some point you might have to learn to type and, and stuff like that. So are you, are you getting a bit of pushback on, on that? Uh, it doesn't have to be contentious, and it hasn't been contentious. Uh, and there are two things I would say to that. First of all, uh, reading and typing are two different skill sets, uh, and there's uh, simply no reason that one can't learn both. The problem that, that we see, though, is that most teachers really haven't thought through the issues in the way that we uh, think would be most helpful. You know, most Teachers, you know, I, I've uh, met with um, teachers of the visually impaired and had conversations and, you know, oh, yeah, of course. Wow, I never thought of it that way. 
Um, or these, again, these comments about Braille enables blind people to read print. You know, no, <laughs> we, we have to understand Braille as literacy, not as some sort of secondary system for literacy, but as literacy itself. So it doesn't have to be contentious. There hasn't been pushback. Uh, we're still at the research phase. So uh, I know a lot of people hate this idea, but you don't want to rush right in from sort of uh, ideas and hypotheses and experiments and that kind of thing into teachers should do this right now, right? This has to be carefully done. There have to be a lot of experiments. There have to be a lot of uh, uh, really digging into these issues so that any kinds of uh, pedagogical teaching decisions can be made on solid evidence and not sort of uh, the anecdotes that are often floating around. And that was the other thing that struck me about the Braille world was there's a lot of anecdotes and people saying, well, I think I do this when I read. And, you know, honestly, people have no idea what they do when they're, read, when they're reading. So we use, uh, you know, a finger tracking system and uh, to, to monitor people while they're reading and their hand movements and their finger movements and, and what people think they do and what people actually do are usually quite different. And that's true for sighted readers as well. Uh, sighted readers have no idea what their eyes do when they read. So all of this is stuff that needs to be investigated empirically through uh, basic research before we get to the step of how is this going to filter into the classroom, although uh, we're pretty sure that it will. What's the timeline, Robert? When do you expect to get some sort of early results from your, your research? Yeah, well, the pandemic has sort of messed all of that up. <laughs> so we did a pilot study, um, Simon, uh, Dr. Fischerbaum and I did a pilot study a couple of years ago that I reported on at the ICEB meeting in Baltimore in 2016, where, where I met Ed. Uh, and that has been published in the Journal of uh, Cognition. So one of the fairly uh, top journals in cognitive sciences. Uh, looking at, uh, well, kind of a preliminary look at this idea of uh, do Braille readers perceive Braille completely serially, or do we chunk Braille into larger sublexical units as we're reading? And that's been a fairly open question in the literature, and our research finds that Braille readers are not reading completely serially, like uh, some people have thought, but there are uh, chunking effects that you can perceive when Braille readers are reading. And we, we studied this through a couple of experiments uh, on uh, fluent readers of Braille. So that was sort of the first, um, we're, we're in the first year of our study now. We had planned to run uh, experiments with Braille readers at the two large conventions this summer, the National Federation of the Blind and the American Council of the Blind. Of course, neither of those conventions are taking place. So uh, a lot of that is going to be pushed later until we can actually get to a place where we can be in the same room with people touching the same surfaces again. Uh, meanwhile, we are analyzing a very large corpus, a body of data that Dr. Holbrook has access to from uh, the Braille Institute of America, and it's called the Braille Challenge Project. And basically, the Braille Challenge is a, um, a contest that children in the United States and Canada from first through 12th grade, so all the way from beginning elementary school through high school, uh, can participate in if they're a Braille reader every year. And there are various parts of that contest, such as taking dictation uh, into Braille, spelling tests, reading comprehension, that kind of thing. So we have this wonderful body of data where there are a couple thousand Braille reading children that do the same exact test, same exact data, same exact writing uh, each uh, it's different each year, but each year the group that's doing it is doing the same thing. So we can analyze the errors that kids make when they're writing. And error analysis is a big deal when we're understanding what the internal system is that, that people are using. So right now we're focusing on analyzing that data. So we hope to have um, a couple articles out uh, next year about that work. The grant is a four-year grant, so in the, it's probably going to be extended another six months or a year because of the pandemic. But So within four years from now, we will plan to have uh, a lot of uh, publications out and a, a symposium where we'll be able to bring Braille educators together and discuss the findings. So answer, uh, the quick answer to your question is probably about four years. Okay. Well, we will be watching with great interest. I'm going to bring in Ed Rogers. I think he said earlier that he might want to ask a question. I, the, well, my question actually is about the anecdotes you mentioned, and uh, you might include bluffing in there as well. There's lots of people 
like myself who rely quite heavily to keep their business going on continuously having to insist on the merits of braille of course many people on this call have to do that all the time and one of the one of the shortcuts i'm afraid i take all the time is by telling people who know nothing about braille that it effectively has all the same benefits of print and that it has been demonstrated that people read at the same speeds that you get similar sort of chunking effects something i took directly out of your talk i think um and 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 that it is a almost basically a very I go beyond what I actually know and emphasize the commonality, even if I'm sort of making it up slightly. To what extent has my bluffing been true? Is I suppose the question there. What what can you tell us about the the differences and the similarities as far as you know so far? Oh goodness. Well, it doesn't sound like bluffing to me. I mean, the point is when you're talking with people about Braille who don't know Braille, you want to make the point that this is a writing system that blind people use. It is just as good, it is equal to, it is uh, not inferior to print, right? Um, so that's kind of what I'm hearing you're saying, and I, I, there's nothing wrong with that. And the speeds, um, for example, are there, are there a similar range of speeds amongst people who learn at the same age, of course, that being a major difference? That isn't necessarily the case. So the good studies that have been done, you know, well-controlled and that kind of thing, comparing print readers and Braille readers of similar backgrounds and similar education levels and that kind of thing, find that Yes, there is an area of overlap where there are print readers that are slower than Braille readers. There are Braille readers that are slower than print readers. There's sort of, so the fastest readers are print readers, but that doesn't mean that Braille is any less efficient. There are, like I said, print readers that read slower than the fastest Braille readers. So there's a whole range of reading rates. And I find the whole discussion of reading speed to be a distraction from more important things. So people are so focused on how fast can I read? How fast can I read? That uh, they've, they've lost sight of the important part of reading, which is understanding what you read, comprehending what you read, enjoying what you're reading. And uh, in the work that I've done so far, when I've, uh, when we've run people in experiments and done some interviews with them, I do get a sense from a number of people that their goal is to be the fastest possible reader. And, and that's not necessarily the most important thing. I'm sorry, I should let other people come in, but I just got a, a very quick fire questions, I hope. If, I've always assumed that the, when I was saying that about the speed of reading, that most there is a, a limit that most people reach of reading, which is what they want to read at, which is roughly reading quickly as though they were saying it out loud. Uh, is that sort of true? Because that's something you can do just as well in Braille and print. Is the average reading speed quite similar? Well, it's hard, again, it's hard to define an average reading speed because most of the studies of print readers are like college kids between 18 and 22 or something. But, um, you know, uh, there are plenty of Braille readers that read over 250 words a minute. If that's your question, you know, 250 words a minute is pretty fast. Uh, many print readers don't read that fast, uh, but we do see Braille readers reading that fast. And, and this one may be on a slightly different line, but there is quite strong evidence that reading on different materials, such as uh, for a print reader reading a, a physical book, they have significantly higher comprehension and retention than they do on a screen. I just wonder where, how Braille falls into that with comprehension, and is there differences between paper Braille, digital Braille? That's a good question. And especially when we talk about Braille displays, because most displays, not only are you having the issue of reading the display, but you're also doing this thing with a finger to scroll the display. And uh, we know in studies of print reading, when people do something while they're reading, like if they tap their foot or if they move their hand or if they're engaged in other activities coincidental with the reading, that their comprehension goes down. And I've often wondered, this isn't something that we've ever studied, uh, whether having to manually advance a display causes some gaps in reading comprehension and that kind of thing, as compared to, say, reading on a uh, display that automatically scrolls when you get to the end of it or reading on hard copy Braille. There haven't been any studies that have looked at that. There have been a couple of studies of speed on display versus print, and they've been pretty bad, very uncontrolled in terms of comparing apples with apples yeah because it's very interesting the possibility that you could that it could be the position in the book that helps people recognize remember it oh yeah well people do remember spatially where, where things are located there's some kind of neat studies for print readers and spatial memory in that way yeah 
Thank you. So we've got quite a few hands raised now. Um, first off the block is Ilka. Hi, I have a question about foreign language acquisition through Braille because I find the idea of the chunking very, very interesting. So if you learn foreign language through Braille, you probably have to learn different chunks as well, would be my assumption. And are there any ways to make it easier or is it comparable to print readers looking at, you know, different letters, different combination of letters, suddenly having to make different sounds? Yeah, well, that's a good question. I don't know of any research that speaks to that in Braille. Uh, I mean, yes, when you learn uh, to read another language, you have to learn the orthography, right, the, the spelling. You have to learn the uh, grapheme-phoneme correspondences, what letters or what symbols correspond to what sounds, how are they arranged. Uh, and this is true for print readers and Braille readers. I mean, uh, Braille foreign language has some, uh, I mean, different, uh, I'm not sure how things are done in the UK, but in the US, unfortunately, most uh, foreign language teaching happens in uncontracted Braille. So you don't end up learning the in-country Braille system unless you actually go there. So I read, uh, I studied German in school when I was growing up here, and all the materials were basically in uh, uncontracted English Braille with the German letters. And I lived and studied in Germany for a while. And before I did that, I made a point of learning the German contracted Braille system, which is uh, a fantastically well-designed system. So uh, I don't know of any studies that have looked at this for Braille readers, but it's certainly true for print readers. And learning a second language, learning a second writing system, you know, involves the same kinds of uh, statistical learning that you do when you're learning your first language or first writing system. Of course, you already have some foundation to build on, which can kind of be a double-edged sword because uh, you might uh, think that things work like they do in English and they don't. But uh, there's, uh, yeah, th that's the best I can do for your question. Thank you, Ilka. So I'm going to go next to uh, Ben Mustel-Rose. Hi, thanks for that, Robert. That was that was really interesting. And just quickly, one of the things that really struck a chord with me was earlier when you were talking about some of the problems with contractions, um, you know, as, uh, with feed as an example. Um, I That took me back to when I was learning to read Braille. And um, well, uh, about 10 years after, I found out that I was actually dyslexic, uh, which uh, probably didn't help. But I remember feed because that was one that I really struggled with because I could read the letters, but I would read fee, ed, because when I was taught ed, that was Ed and I could figure it out but it would be that extra step you know I couldn't do it passively I had to really think to put those things together so thank you for that you've, you've answered a, a question that I've had for about 20 years there um, but I wondered um, you were talking about how people often don't understand what they're doing when they're reading what what are the sort of most common misconceptions you find that people have about what they're doing when they're reading braille oh goodness um when I said people don't understand what they're doing, they're reading, I didn't mean that in a way of you know, people stupid or anything like that, but in, in the sense that people are generally unaware of how low-level cognitive processes work, <laughs> right? So people are unaware in print how their eyes focus and jump, focus and jump, focus and jump. They're unaware of the jumps. They actually don't see them. Uh, in, in Braille reading, it, yeah, it gets a little trickier because there are so many different ways that people read Braille. And this has been one of the things that has been just fascinating for me uh, when I work with readers and when we're doing these studies is how many different styles of reading there are. So some people use both hands, some people use one hand, some people use four fingers on each hand. Some people, uh, you know, there's different um, hand and finger usages. And that's something that that has been studied for quite some time in the Braille uh, pedagogy world, right? What are the most efficient hand and finger movements for reading Braille? Uh, but, you know, um, there would be people in our interviews that would say, oh, yes, I use both of my hands and, you know, I use all the fingers on my right hand and, and two of the fingers on my left hand. And then they would read and that is not at all what they were doing, right? They were using uh, their right hand index finger and their left hand sort of as a place marker. And, you know, we don't, one of the things that I think is a really interesting question uh, for those of us that are two-handed readers doing what what is called the scissors method, right? Where you read the right half of the line with your right hand and then you start reading the left half of the next line with your left hand as your right hand moves back to join in the middle. 
One of the questions that I think is really interesting is at what point do you swap off hands? When does the left hand stop reading and the right hand start on a line? Is it a character position? Is it after a word? Is it uh, you know, what triggers that? And nobody's ever looked at that. And to me, that's a really fascinating question that you can't introspect about. You have no idea when that happens. But uh, that's, that's the kind of thing that I meant. Thank you, Ben. I know uh, Matthew Horsepool has a question as well. I can see a couple of you have your hands raised. Don't worry, we'll come to you. Yeah. Hello. Good evening. There's a real push in the UK and I suspect in other parts of the world to educate blind children in mainstream schools, which I haven't personally experienced. I went to a blind school and therefore all the teachers knew about Braille and they were very good at teaching me Braille in a way that made sense. But our UK schools are now being really strictly measured about are you teaching split digraphs, are you teaching this and one thing or another. At what point in your research do we start to come to, well, actually, the curriculum regulators need to acknowledge that Braille is different and you, you can't teach blind people in that way? Yeah, that's a really important question. I mean, I did go through public schools um, several of them. Uh, I moved around, my, my family moved around the United States quite a lot when I was growing up. So I went to one, two, three, four different schools by the time I finished high school. Um, and I was taught uh, by a, what was called at that point, a resource teacher. So there, I, um, blind students would be pulled out of the classroom to learn Braille in a, in a resource room by a teacher of the visually impaired. Uh, and there is movement now, of course, to continue um, educating in public schools. But one of the impetuses for our grant was exactly that question. So there is some people make a distinction between the Braille teacher and the reading teacher. So uh, Braille teacher teaches the code and reading teacher is the classroom teacher that teaches reading. And that all of us on this grant project uh, think is primarily misguided because you can't be a Braille teacher without teaching reading. You have to know how reading works to teach Braille. And that, I think, of what I hope will come out of our findings uh, will be recommendations. Again, we haven't done the research yet, so this may all be uh, changed as we go along. But the importance that people who teach Braille, so teachers of the visually impaired, should also know about reading and be able to teach them simultaneously rather than the classroom teacher teaching reading. Also then, uh, it may make a strong argument for this need for pullout time, that Braille reading children need to be taught Braille by a qualified professional uh, and not learn Braille through print. That learning Braille through print is, um, goes against the way that we actually read. Right? That's the whole decoding question. If you learn Braille through print, then you're learning to be a print decoder. Uh, and uh, when, you, when you become a reader, it sort of is happening automatically behind the scenes. And maybe that's not the most efficient way to do things. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. When I left school, I went to work in a school which had a, um, a resource base which took you know sent peripatetic teachers out to mainstream schools. And it was the thing that we got all the time, as you say, the, the braille teacher was teaching the, the people how to read but the braille teacher was teaching the people how to read based on the braille curriculum and the order that made sense in teaching braille and then was actually being told off almost by the reading teacher and th there certainly wasn't an acceptance that actually you need to teach braille differently right and that i think you know there hasn't been evidence-based research addressing that question so again, we can talk about our anecdotes and, and, and my experience and your experience and other people's experiences, but this is where the grant project that Simon and Kay and I are working on uh, aims to contribute, to give evidence-based answers to that question of how should Braille reading be taught. Thank you very much, Matthew. Next, I believe, is Terry. My question is UEB computer Braille. And, you know, the discussion is we have to make the Braille look exactly like the print so that the braille reader knows exactly what the print reader is reading. And in some cases that might be good, but in a lot of cases, I don't know that I agree with that argument. So when you were talking about that thing of teaching braille to be uh, so that you're familiar with the print, how do you, where do you stand on this UEB and computer braille 
issue of having to make the braille look like the print. So we have a bazillion symbols to represent all these different things that a lot of people don't even want. So are you talking about things like the type form indicators, like italics and bold? And like, what specifically are you uh, referring to? I suppose in some ways, yes, the, some of those symbols. Um, sometimes we need to know, you know what letters are capitalized, uh, if the whole thing is capitalized, that sort of thing. But I guess how far do we go with that in terms of underlining and bold and wanting to make it look exactly like the print? So we have all these extra symbols in here to, to try to make that happen. I don't know that I can really answer that question. That's not what I do. Uh, my personal view is that it depends on what you're doing it for. So uh, like a lot of the uh, materials for school children now use that. So uh, identify the part of speech of all the underlying words and do something with all the bold words and something with the italic words. So uh, typeface and font styles and even color have become such an integral part of uh, schooling for print readers that any reader who is using that curriculum would have to have access to those materials. So I see those things as providing equal access. I, I don't, uh, they may end up being distractors, people may ignore them, but ultimately if our goal is to provide equal access, then I think that UEB has um, solved that in a, in a fairly, in the best way possible. Whether it's needed in all circumstances, I think people realize that it's not needed in all circumstances, but certainly it enables greater access than, say, just in like English Braille American Edition, right? That's four six indicated any strange type form. And we just can't do that now. The way that print looks is so different than it looked like 40 years ago when I was in school. Thank you very much, Terry. Next will be uh, Steph. How are you doing, Steph? Thank you so much. It's really fascinating and so needed. It's, it's such a relief to hear you. Is there any way we can help with the research? And is there, has there been any research done in the difference it makes, whether you take in something in by audio or by touch? So the project that Kay and Simon and I are doing, this, this uh, large grant project, is... Uh, U.S. and Canada-based. It's one of those sort of federally funded programs. So unfortunately, uh, we can't, uh, well, I mean, we certainly plan to uh, invite people from the whole Braille world, not just uh, the United States and Canada, and to share the results. But in terms of like running experiments and that kind of thing, uh, we don't have plans to do that in, in the U.K., but, uh, you know, I, I think that could be something that happens in the future. Uh, what uh, your other question was audio. Yeah, the difference between audio and touch. I find it so much easier to take things in by touch. Yeah, a lot of people do. Particularly finance stuff and, you know, numbers and things like that. Yeah, or uh, IPA stuff or a lot of things. Um, I don't do research on the difference between reading by touch and uh, listening to audio kind of things. So I don't feel like I can really comment on that other than I think we all have our own kind of things that we find work best for us and things that we like to read in Braille and things that we like to hear and things that like, you know, maybe reading a novel, you just want to go fast and zone out and, you know, crank up your speech synthesizer or listen to, to an audio book. So I, I don't really have anything to say on that other than I am so thankful that we live in an age where we can read things most of the time however we want you know the the fact that we can download materials and read them on a braille display on our iphone you don't have to take whatever a year to get a book transcribed it's just phenomenal and in a lot of ways i'm glad that i'm sort of trending toward the old and remember a time where right things were not so readily available because it's just great that we have choice and i, I think the only thing i want to say about that is we need to continue to have choice in what we read and how we read it. Dave, if you don't mind, I've got one very quick question for Robert. Is there any way after when the research is published, have you got any plans for disseminating any of it in an open format? So I know it's, it can be quite frustrating when you're interested in something, you don't have a university email account, you can't access university libraries. To do. Yeah, well, it's, um, we're required to upload everything into, uh, there's a federal research database called Eric, I can't remember the 
what the acronym stands for, but we try to make most things open source if at all possible, but uh, we're not there yet. So I, I can't really make any promises right now. Hello, Richard West. I don't want to pursue this particularly strongly because I don't think it's a sensible course of action, but I would be interesting to know whether you think that the current and more recent Braille contraction systems actually impedes people's speed of, of understanding and reading. Yeah, that's a really good question. That's one of the things that actually um, kind of provoked my uh, my looking into this issue of sublexical structure is whether the rather promiscuous nature of contractions currently uh, in some ways slows down fluency and that kind of thing. And I, uh, you know, we haven't done the research. We can show you that uh, when people are in experimental contexts, they take longer to um, recognize a word that has uh, bridging contractions in it. But we also know that um, people learn to read a lot of words as exceptions, and I, I think most of those words will simply be learned if they're if they're frequent words, they'll be learned as exceptions. If they're infrequent words, they may trip you up every time you see them. Um, I'm laughing at the word pandemic now, which has the a n d contraction in it. I'm thinking that's just not right. But you know, the more I see the word pandemic, uh, the more used to it you get. So the question is a really good question, and we have preliminary answers, but I don't think we can say yet the degree to which bridging contractions overall affect fluency and that kind of thing. Thank you, Richard. Um, we've got a couple of questions left. So first of all, let's go to Jane Sellers. I found your talk very fascinating. As a reasonably new Braillist, I didn't learn till I was 20. And I've had to learn the new system of UEB what I'd like to know is, how do you go about learning the IPA? Is there an actual way of learning it? Well, I, I think one thing I want to be clear on is that uh, the IPA is not, um, you know, it's something that people who are in fields where you need it have access to it. But it's not really something that, you know, in, unless you're going into the language sciences or into fields where, where that's needed, it's not intended to be like everyone go out and learn the IPA. It might be a way in, though, to those fields, possibly. Oh, of course. Absolutely. Because I wanted to learn another language because um, my mum lived in Spain for quite a while. So I had to learn a bit of Spanish and I got this Spanish book in Braille from the RNIB. I found it fascinating. But could I write it down? No. <laughs> I could read it and understand it, but there's no way I could have written it. So on that then, Robert, what would be a kind of a starting point? I suppose you've just gone to Google, but where would you get hold of the Braille version of the IPA? If you Google Braille IPA or IPA Braille, it should take you to my website. The, the IPA, well, it's available through the ICEB website. Uh, I have a link to that from my page. There's a couple of other resources out there, but that's not really designed to teach you the IPA. Uh, you would probably want to see if you could get hold of a, a course in uh, phonetics or intro linguistics textbook or something like that to really teach you what the IPA is and, and how it matters and how you learn it. I also, you know, in talking about other languages and Braille systems, there's a great resource called World Braille Usage uh, that gives all of the Braille systems for the languages in the world that have Braille systems. And uh, it's a resource that was just updated about three years ago by uh, ICEB and uh, Perkins School for the Blind and Library of Congress in the United States. And, you know, it lists Braille tables for all of the world's languages that have Braille. It talks about the IPA. Uh, it's an excellent resource for people that want to know things about Braille and other languages. Can I ask a quick follow-up question on that? Sometimes on Wikipedia or websites like that, you'll, you'll look at a word and it will show the print IPA how straightforward is it? We, I know that you've said already that there are IPA tables in Duxbury and in Liblui and things like that, but what are the prerequisites for actually using those tables? Gosh, uh, if you're on your iPhone looking at Wikipedia and you've set up, uh, so you, know, you add whatever Braille tables you want to the rotor, uh, you just flip over to it, swipe to Braille IPA, and you'd be able to read the symbol, and then you swipe it back to UEB. It's a little more difficult with JAWS, but I have um, some uh, description for how to uh, update the character dictionary so that IPA symbols are spoken. Uh, and I have a JBT, so a Braille uh, display file, 
that if someone really wants to use JAWS with IPA, they can install, although that is a little bit tricky. So really, in screen readers, you simply have to update the character dictionary with either the names of the symbols if you're using speech or the Braille equivalents if you're using Braille. So I, I don't, I'm not currently using NVDA, but my sense of looking at it is that would be pretty much the same process. You, you define the Unicode symbols, the Braille that should be associated with it, and the spoken label. And uh, I mean, I have all that information on, on my website if people want to do it. Um, our final question comes from Melanie. Hi, um, I just wondered if there'd ever been any comparison studies with deaf-blind Braille users who perhaps use tactile sign language and have no audio memory? That's a really good question. Um, and there, there's been relatively little work in the deafblind community on, on Braille research, and that's a, an area that needs to be studied. Lovely. And we have got one final question. Uh, Matthew's just texted me. He's unable to raise his hand because he's a co-host. Um, but he does have a question that sounded very interesting, if you'd be happy to look at it very quickly. You talked about reading, you know, research into how Braille is being read. And somebody mentioned dyslexia. And it reminded me that there are some people who I observe probably have print dyslexia but don't seem to have that problem in Braille and vice versa. There are some people that seem to have, you know, if you read, if you looked at their Braille, you would think they were dyslexic, but actually their, their print is fine. And I just wondered if you had any comments on that. Well, there's a lot of research that needs to be done there. There, there are very few studies looking at dyslexia in Braille. There, there are no good definitions really yet. So that's a whole wide area of reading science that needs to happen yet. Dave Williams and other people involved in the Stay Safe, Stay Connected conference calls were in conversation with Dr. Robert Engelbretson. And if you'd like more information about anything you've heard, you can find links on the Brailcast website at www.brailcast.com or in the show notes. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe. You can search for Brailcast in your favourite podcast client. Or if you'd like to send us any comments, please drop us a line at news at brailcast.com For now though, that's all for this episode of Brailcast, so thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you again next time. Bye!